I don't, I don't take a lot of selfies. I don't take a lot of selfies, and it's not because of my age. Um, I have a friend who's 20 years older than me in the Chamber of Commerce, and she has a selfie stick. And we're all gathering around Ruby so that we can get in her pictures that she posts all over social media. But you may not know this if you don't take a lot of selfies, but there's such a thing as a selfie fail, okay? So I wanna share several selfie fails with you this morning. The first one is very famous. You've probably seen it already. It's a lady in a hijab and she posts on Instagram, traffic is so terrible. But when you zoom into her mirrored sunglasses, you can see that the road is clear. Hmm. My personal favorites are the ones, my boyfriend took a picture of me asleep. Look at her arm, okay? And lest you think I'm picking on the ladies, my girlfriend took a picture of me asleep. I hate it when she does that. Right. He's holding an iPad with his feet and taking a picture with his toes. That is utterly amazing. Look how cute I am, selfie. I've had to block this one out because she's not just in the bathroom, she's on the throne. <laughs> not realizing that there's a mirror behind her. Now, my personal favorite is this one right here. I want a picture that shows how tough and buff I am. Is it a CrossFit buddy who's taking the picture for him? No, look a little closer. Thanks, mom. Hey, mommy, can you take a picture of my muscles? <laughs> sure, honey. So these selfies, these selfies are all meant to make you think one thing when really it's another thing altogether. Why do we have such a need to impress other people? And why do we lie in order to look better than we, than we really are. Every single one of us has done this, by the way. In the 1990s, I went to a conference at Saddleback Church in sunny California to learn leadership from Rick Warren with 5,000 of my closest friends. And at lunch the first day, we were dining al fresco outside at these circle tables. And of course, all of the pastors at the table wanted to introduce themselves, and so it started with the man on my left. I was the last one to introduce myself. And one by one, my name's Gary Denton. I'm pastor of Harvest Church outside of Chicago. We run about 5,700 on the weekends, and on and on it went. Now, at the time, I was a children's pastor in a church of 220. <laughs> the smallest number given at the table other than me was 1,500, and I was going last. So I'm Max, I'm a children's pastor. And in that moment, I rounded up. I, we're a church of 300. <laughs> 80 people, just out of nowhere, <laughs> boom. <laughs> Why is that? What is it in us that causes us to do that? Like, here's the thing. You may fool other people, but you can't fool God, you can't. God knows everything, God sees everything. There's nothing that's secret or hidden from him. And so that's where we're going today. Since you can't fool God, you're better off being real and keeping your integrity. Let me say that again. Since you can't fool God, 
you're better off being real and keeping your integrity. So today, we're going to examine the ultimate you can't fool God story in the Bible. In fact, it's so unusual, it's so jarring that uh, some people want to suggest that it never happened, that it's just a made up story. And that is so not the case because if Luke does anything in the, God, in the uh, book of Acts, Luke is the one who penned the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If Luke does anything, he doesn't just give us the Instagram-worthy moments of the early church. He lets us see all of the conflict and turmoil and problems of the early church too. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through Acts 5:11. All right? And we'll chunk this away one section of scripture at a time. So Acts 4:32. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There, was no, there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. So there are two things that characterize the life of the early church that's gathering in and around Jerusalem after Jesus' death and resurrection. The first thing is this united in heart and mind. They had a common mind and purpose. They were united in their devotion and their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And the other thing is, they took care of one another. Look at that. They shared everything they had. So if you're paying attention and you're reading this thing that Luke is writing about the early church, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Now, Jesus, when he said the greatest commandment was to love God and the second greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself, these guys here are actually living it out. That's what it looks like to live out those commandments. Whoa, mind blown. I mean, that's what's supposed to be going on. So what's happening is because they treated each other as family, when people in the family had a pressing need, other members of the family who had extra would liquidate those assets, mainly they would sell property, sell land, and take the proceeds of that and put it into the church's common fund, the church's checking book, checkbook, so to speak. Um, and so a man named Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, this guy clearly, this guy's one of Luke's heroes, by the way, if you don't know this. Barnabas comes up 23 times in the book of Acts. In Luke's mind, clearly Barnabas is a rock star. Like, Luke just loves Barnabas. And the early church did too, right? His name is Joseph, and what do they nickname him? Encouragement. Like, encouragement personified. That's Barnabas, okay? And so somebody has a need, and what does Barnabas do? He sells some land, and he brings all of it for the church to put in the church's checking account to take care of the need, all right? So what happens next? And that's Acts 5 and following. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, they, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, 
Why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. So Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look good among the people in the church. They wanted to be uh, revered and celebrated, not unlike the way Barnabas was. And they did it without the sacrifice, okay? So they conspire together to act like they're giving all of the money that they got for the sale of the land when that wasn't really true at all. Uh, That's that phrase, he kept the rest. The Greek there is the same Greek in the Septuagint from this passage in Joshua when Achan kept something back from Jericho. Uh, It's also the same verb used in the first century to uh, denote fraud. It's not a happy verb. It's not a verb you want to have associated with your name, keeping back. It's no bueno. But that's what they do. Peter, Peter has the power of spiritual insight and he recognizes that he's being lied to. Can I just be honest? I am not the most spiritual pastor. I am not Peter. I am not John. But from time to time, even I've figured out I'm being lied to as a pastor. It's happened. Uh, The most frequent way it's happened over the years in ministry is I'll get a couple, and one of the the husband or the wife is cheating on the other. And when I get the, the cheating partner alone, I'll say, I just want you to... I want you to tell me the name of the person. Just come out clean, come honest. They'll look at the ground, and and they'll be like, how did you know? God, I don't, like, right? It happens. And so Peter recognizes he's being lied to. And here's the thing. Ananias and Sapphira, they could have kept the money. They could have kept the money. They could have kept the land. And if they had, if if it was going to be the case that Let's say they sell the land for $100,000. If they were going to be embarrassed to kind of show up and go, hey, we sold this land for $100,000. Here's $30,000 to put into the church's common fund. If that was going to be embarrassing for them, they didn't even have to sell it. Like no one had a gun to their head saying, you have to do this, right? So what happens? And that's verse 5 and following. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Come on, can you imagine a church service here? Think about it. We're gathered together. Let's say the halls have, you know, sold something, right? (laughs) Boom. Like we call 911, and then on Facebook later that day, dead. Absolutely. Would you be inclined to come back to church next week? (laughs) Would you? Right. <laughs> okay. He falls down dead. Now, some folks will say, well, he was in shock because he had been publicly outed and he, he suffered a heart attack. I'm just going to tell you, while that's possible, this is clearly an act of God. This is clearly an act of God. It's a mistake to think that the violent, vengeful God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the loving, gracious God of the New Testament. They're the same God. 
And, and we see this in this story. Right here in the book of Acts, after Jesus, after Jesus meek and mild, after Jesus who dies on a cross for our sins, we see judgment for lying to God. It's the sin of hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira are trying, they're pretending to be generous when they're really not. Ouch. I, if I were making Christian t-shirts, what the one that I would make is, uh, I have this, I love this quote from John Stott, an evangelical Christian, by the way. And the quote is really simple. God hates hypocrisy. I would love to make Christian t-shirts and then put John Stott, evangelical Christian, underneath it, just so for everybody in America to go, wait a minute. Yes, apparently, so when you are like, hypocrites, understand God feels very similar to those to those feelings that you have, okay? If you're gonna see the power of God, if you're gonna see healings and deliverance, don't be surprised if you also see the judgment of God because no one wants things to be made right more than God. He made it, he made the world, he died, right? He rose again, he wants things to be made right. So. Let's keep going, and that's verses seven and following. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, right? Can you imagine the pause in that moment, everybody knowing what had just happened? She comes in, Peter asks the question, wouldn't there be part of you that'd be like, no, no, the answer's no, 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 it's not the price. No, look at me, right? Yes, yes, that is the price, okay? Now, some things about this. She, uh, Peter says, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they'll carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. Now, unlike her husband, Sapphira had an opportunity to tell the truth, and she didn't. And just like her husband, she's struck dead. Now, in Jewish culture, the way it worked was you were buried the same day you died. There are reasons for this. I don't know if you know this, but without embalming or cremation, dead people stink. After about two or three days, it's just, you know, right? And so in Jewish culture of the day, the day you die is the day you, you're buried, generally. There's an exception for cases like an act of God. That happens even more quickly, and the usual notification and gather the whole family around doesn't happen. Now, we have, we have in our own culture something similar to that. If you go to the Wild West, okay, in the 1800s, and you're a cattle, cattle rustler or a horse thief, and the judge, and you're caught, and the judge happens to be in session, the gallows are already set up, you could be tried, convicted, and hung on the same day in the good old United States of America, and nobody's gonna notify your next of kin. So we have a cultural reference for how this might play out, so Sapphira doesn't know. We don't know, did they go try to find her and tell her? Like, we don't know, we just know this happened very, very quickly. 
So a husband and a wife wanted everyone in the church to think that they were amazing, to think that they were encouraging, just like Barnabas, to think that they were generous, and things didn't turn out that way. Let me ask a question. Why do we have such a need to impress other people? What is that in us? Like, why do we do this? And why don't we care more about what God thinks of us than what other people think of us. So if you're here today and you've struggled with hypocrisy in the church, I just want to cue you in on the fact that God struggles with hypocrisy in the church. <laughs> God also does not want hypocrisy in the church. Like, that's good news. So let me ask a couple of questions in light of this passage and in light of what we see in this passage. And the question is, in what area of your life are you most tempted to lie? Or to put it another way, in what area of your life are you most tempted to pretend? Where does that happen for you? And, and clearly, the second thing out of this passage, the, the level of generosity of these Christians, come on, isn't that kind of amazing? People sell property and they give 100% of the proceeds to the church's checkbook? Like, who does that? That's crazy. So when you look at that and when you kind of look at where we are in America, you have to, like, there's this percentage proportion thing. So when God looks at generosity, God doesn't look at a number. It's $10,000, $10, it doesn't matter. What matters is what is the proportion of the gift versus what the person has. And that's how God seems to measure generosity. Um, and so the question is, would anybody consider what you or I give as rising to the level of truly generous, whether that's our money or our time or whatever it is? I, I want to make some practical, practical things from this passage. This, this is an amazing, come on, is this not an amazing passage? If this happened in our church, I, 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 Churches like to do things to draw people in. Can you imagine? Come to Generations Community Church, 10 a.m. You never know who might die, <laughs> right? Not a great marketing strategy. Not a great marketing strategy. So what are some take-homes from this? Well, the first is in the church, in the church, there are two kinds of people, and they look the same from the outside. Ananias and Sapphira looked like Barnabas, okay? And it's gonna happen. In the 1990s, when I was the executive pastor at Church of the Savior, we had an elder, and he was generous, and he was kind, and he prayed, and he showed up and did things, and, and he looked like all the other elders of the church. Only he was abusive to his wife at home and to his son and daughter. And it was years before we found out. Again, two kinds of people in the church and from the outside, they look the same. The second thing that we can take from this passage is if we're honest, we Americans living in 2019, we're not that generous. We're just not. Um, in 2015, Texas A&M did a study and they found that 61% of Americans give to charity and on average, it's 3.7% of their income. 
Um, religious giving in America, the kind that we read about in Acts that went to the church's checkbook, uh, uh, that giving is down 50% from what it was in the 1990s. So it's half of what it was in the 1990s. Um, the average American today gives 2.5% to their local church. By the way, in the Great Depression, do you know what that number was? 3.3%, it's a little higher. So again, the second thing is, we're just not as generous as we probably think we are. The third thing is, we can't hide from God, right? We can't tell a real repenter from a faker. Often we can't, we just don't, we can't see into the heart the way God can. But here's the thing, there's nothing secret or hidden from God. And Jesus said, what is it, Matthew 10, he says, everything that is done and said in secret will be shouted at one day from the rooftops. In other words, it's not gonna stay secret or hidden forever, okay? Um, so if we say, I love Jesus, yes I do, I love Jesus, how about you? And we don't live like it, that, that gets under God's skin, so to speak. God doesn't like that. God would much rather us just say, eh, Christians, don't wanna have anything to do with them, God stinks. He would rather you live an authentic life in rebellion to him than to play the game of, as Nat King Cole saw, saying, why don't we pretend? He does not like that song and he does not like that way of living. So here's the thing, don't fake it. I don't know if you notice, but every week there's a banner up here. Did you notice what's at the top of the banner? Don't fake it. This is one of our church values. Don't fake it. Be you. Be you, be real, okay? In the 1970s, the way that we faked it in, in, in American Christianity was we would show up to church all dressed up and all put together and people, how are things? Oh, they're fine. It's been a blessed week. We're just resting in the Lord, you know, and we'd use the key catchphrases, well, glory, hallelujah, you know, and pass the peace and all that other kind of stuff. Today, in 2019, uh, I think social media is the place where we fake it the most. Um, whether we're looking for attention or we're trying to, like selfies that don't betray the life that's really being lived, like we do a lot of faking online, okay? And so just, just don't fake it, like just, just stop. Um, resist the urge to appear better than you are. And I know it's hard. And here's, here's I'm gonna give you a, a, a response, right? So sometimes within Christian circles, your, your life may be falling apart, right? And uh, how are you? And you don't wanna say, I'm fine. So again, I wanna remind you, you can say this phrase instead, I'm here. I'm here counts for something, right? So on a Sunday morning, feel free. When somebody, how are you? I'm here. And you'll know, okay, mm, it's been a tough week. Um, my, the phrase that I use when people ask me, when, when, when the days have gotten me, rather than me gotten the, getting the days, I'll say, I've had better days. <laughs> I've had better days, okay? So resist the urge to fake it. And then lastly, fear is actually part of worship. Um, we're so quick in our culture to give our take on things. Well, you know, I just really feel that, and off we go and off we launch. And the truth of the matter is, God is God, and we're not. I'm not. Even Max's takes on things. 
God is God. Um, and fear is a healthy part of worship. Remember the Jesus who died on the cross, when he comes back, he's coming back as judge, okay? That, that's enough to sober any of us up, okay? So let me ask a simple question. How different would your life be if you weren't pretending to be something on the outside that you aren't on the inside? Let me ask that again. How different would your life be if you weren't pretending to be something on the outside that you aren't on the inside? You'd be free for better or worse, <laughs> you'd be free, okay? Can you imagine if God killed us every time we pretended? <laughs> None of us would make it out of those doors alive. Like, <laughs> we, we'd all be goners. Thank goodness that our standing with God is not based on our performance. It's based on what Jesus Christ did on our behalf, which means that you don't have to fake it. You don't have to fake it. When you trust him completely, when you let Jesus lead, it's gonna be messy, but you're gonna find that over the course of your life, you end up, as Paul describes, being transformed from the inside out. Your mind is renewed. All of a sudden, you don't have to fake being generous, for example. You just are, because it's, I mean, of course, why wouldn't I? And that's your thought, okay? This is how this works. So I just wanted to make an appeal today. Let's not fake it, right? Let me, I wanna pray for us and Matt's gonna come up and we're gonna sing.